Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to our most recent edition. Today, we're talking a little bit about the physiological aspects of trauma. So, you know, we've spent some time over the course of our conversations talking about how trauma affects the brain and how it might play out in the dynamics and interactions that we have uh, with residents and clients. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about how it impacts the body. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. This isn't something I know a lot about, so I'm looking forward to kind of picking the brains of these two ladies and finding out more. We have with us Suzanne and Lisa from Foundation House. And they are both great women of God, women who have kind of entered into the world of trauma to learn deeply and investigate deeply um, that topic with us. So we're really grateful to have you two. Thank you so much. Thank you you for having us. And I hear Lisa's weathering the storm. She's got her (laughs) blanket tucked under her chin and is trying to ride out a storm. So we're grateful to have you with us, especially Lisa, in the midst of all of that. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So let's just unpack this a little bit. We've We've talked about, we know that trauma affects brain chemistry. We've talked about how that can play out. And what I've learned from the two of you is that it has other implications for the body as well. Can someone just kind of lay that out for us or kind of give us a general overview of what we mean when we say that? When, when your brain flips that switch and puts you into that, either that fight, flight, or freeze response, it is releasing those chemicals that prompt that action, but those same chemicals are also inhibiting other responses. Um, your, your normal day-to-day functions are kind of decreased so that the body can focus more on uh, the emergency response system. Think about it as like if you're coming back from lunch and, and all of a sudden you, uh, you hear a pack of wild dogs chasing after you, all of a sudden your body stops focusing focusing on digesting your sandwich and start focusing more on uh, sending additional blood to your legs and, and giving you the increased adrenaline to get out of the way and those kinds of things. So in an emergency, that's a really useful tool. It's really important that your body is not focused on kind of those non-essential tasks in the moment. The problem comes is when you're living perpetually in that system. And so those non-essential functions really never get turned on or are turned off for extended periods of time before they do come back on again. Things like your digestive system, insulin um, production. When you're when you're in that emergency, your your sympathetic system, your blood rate is going to be accelerated. Your blood vessels are constricted. Your blood pressure is is lifted, um, as well as your muscle tension and, and physical sensations are all amplified during that hot zone when your um, when your body is in that fight flight freeze response. Insulin production is inhibited to maximize the fuel available to your body. So uh, your body doesn't want to inhibit, doesn't want to create more insulin so that you can have plenty of fuel available to you to get you out of the way. Some of the time, uh, headaches and and cold hands and feet can also be apparent because of this um, hot system dominant. Normally, when you're in your cool system, when your parasympathetic system is the one that's engaged, that's where digestion is um, is promoted. That's where your your fuel storage is coming on, and your your insulin ac- activity increases. You're more re- resistant to infection when your sympathetic ner- uh, parasympathetic nervous system is uh, activated. This is what is circulating um, to your non-vital organs. Uh, endorphins are being released, and and your heart rate and your blood pressure and, and core body temperature are all decreased when you're kind of in that that calm that cool sim- system. Um, so so you can see. In the emergency, 
that's really beneficial. You don't want to be focused on digestion. You want to be getting away from the dogs or the bad guy or, um, you know, or, or the car accident or whatever that, whatever that emergency happens to be in the moment. But when it becomes a perpetual lifestyle cycle, those non-essential organs are still essential. Your frontal cortex is, is still essential for success in the future. But in an emergency, in survival mode, those things get shut off. So it's a real challenging way to, um, to, to build a future for yourself when you really don't have access to these non-essential organs, non-essential systems. I guess I, I can imagine in my own life when you think about when I'm experiencing stress, you know, my shoulders get tight, my eyelids start mm-hmm. to do a funny flutter, you know, I, maybe I have trouble exactly. sleeping, those type of things. So I can imagine, yeah. you know, just with the normal stresses of life. So what I hear you saying is that when you're kind of in that emergency mode or you're kind of living in a cyclical where, where that system is getting activated on a regular basis, it's like those normal things that occur during stress are occurring at a greater level um, and might even mm-hmm. impact kind of at you at an organ level. Is that, is that what I hear you saying? Exactly. Exactly. What that would look like in a client would be chronic stomach ache. Um, you know, they would be doing good for a few days and then suddenly they're having abdominal pain or they're throwing up or they have diarrhea, something is wrong. And, and you start to notice that consistently every so often that they have these same symptoms over and over with nothing, you know, being found on any tests that are done. So all of those physiological things that are going on inside manifest themselves as it could look like a virus, you know, oh, I'm getting the flu, um, you know, or uh, ate something that was bad and it comes out. That That's what somebody would see in their clients when they have yeah. blood pressure rated. Um, that's yeah. just one of the... Uh, one of the things that come out in clients. Uh, I'm not sure how to ask this question correctly, but it, you know, it's kind of that question of like, is it is it real? Is there something happening, or is it a is it a mental kind of response to a trigger? You know, do you know what yeah. I'm asking? Is it is there like yeah, real exactly. pain, or is it is it just uh, yeah? It, it's it's kind <laughs> and of and the answer both. is yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> it is both. Uh, it can be psychosomatic. But, you know, it's still very, very real. Um, yeah. Say, for instance, if, if there was a rape and, you know, you ha- you were held down, you know, your arms, and then something happens that triggers you and, and you feel like your arms are confined, you may not have any physical pain, but you may relive those symptoms in your mind and feel as though you do. You can induce mm-hmm. yourself to have these psychosomatic symptoms, but they feel very, very real. So, you know, if they if they are your truth, they are true. And if, if one of the girls goes to the ER, to the hospital, they're required to treat them. If they say, I'm in pain, they have to treat you. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes a habit, wearing out the ER consistently yeah. over and over and over. Yeah, and and I think it's important that we make note that just because it's psychosomatic doesn't mean that the client is actually intending for this to happen. That's really not the definition of psychosomatic. But but yeah, the brain is doing all of this to the body. And so it, it is the definition of psychosomatic, but it is not the client's kind of manipulation of the situation mm-hmm. trying to make these things happen. Uh, right. She's just kind of held captive to, to what her body is doing. Kind of like the opposite of the placebo effect. Exactly. That's a great, great definition. Can you say more about that? Uh, yeah, with the placebo effect, of course, you know, if you believe that something's working and you believe you feel good, then you are going to feel good, whether mm-hmm. you actually um, are taking a medication or using a, a 
a substance, a, you know, whatever it may be that you are doing, if you believe that it is working, it, it is working, whether it is a sugar pill or, you know, whether it's that you um, are doing yoga every morning, whatever it is. If, you, if someone tells you this is going to help you and you truly believe it, it will help you. So the opposite is true. You know, if you believe that you are sick or that you are in pain, it is true. Whether it's in your mind or not, it's still a reality. It's still yeah. your truth. I don't know if that makes sense. But, yeah. Um, so, so let's talk a little bit about how to handle the dynamics of that in a house. If a mom is consistently complaining about stomach pain, um, yeah. there doesn't appear to be a source. How do you enter into that dynamic and help her to, to figure out how to address that in her life? Well, personally, it took it took me a couple of years to realize what was actually going on. And, you know, with clients, you always want to err on the side of caution. We would be at the ER every month with someone or Another client would uh, have false labor pains, you know, a dozen times and have to go to labor and delivery. You know, and you're thinking, well, if I don't do this and something's wrong, then, you know, mm -hmm. I'm going to be more you know, liable. Really liable. But as it went on and you start to see these patterns emerge, I try to address them, you know, by, you know, if this is true and this is true and this is true and these things aren't present, then, you know, we just need to see how you feel let's try breathing or let's try taking a couple of Tylenol and laying down if there's no true emergency and, and the client is, you know, fairly calm because they are in real pain. But if they mm -hmm. insist on going to the ER, then, you know, once again, you pretty much have to take them. Um, one client right now is experiencing some symptoms that for her age are just not something that you would get. And, and we're pretty positive it's anxiety driven, but she's having multiple, multiple tests run. And, you know, as somebody in charge of caring for her and helping her grow, you can't tell her, no, you can't go have these tests done. It's a waste of time, even though you know that it's, it's you know, 99.3% sure that it is. Uh, and so you hope that you can turn that into a teaching tool later. Well, you know, if you would, if you would try a different diet, uh, say inflammation, if you have, you know, chronic inflammation, that is absolutely stress related. And it's also lifestyle related, what they're eating and just try to keep pointing these things out. Then one day, a few months down the road, they'll say, well, you know what? Somebody told me if I would just cut out sugar or if I would just go for a walk three times a day or three times a week, my uh, inflammation would go down. And you're like, yeah, that's what I've been telling you for the last you know, <laughs> six months, but yeah. it, it, they have it, they have to own it. It has to be their truth. So it's really difficult to, and you always want to err on the side of client safety, of course. But sooner or later, you know, you have to get around to the root cause of the issue. Just treating the symptom is not going to help them move forward. And we're also really open with them about the nature of trauma and, and just this, this type of research in general as it pertains to her and to her situation and as she is, you know, cognitively capable of understanding it, we want her to understand the impact of stress, of toxic stress and of, and of her past trauma so that she can begin to 
own this and embrace it and understand that, you know, just because somebody starts talking about a heart attack doesn't mean that my uh, my shoulder needs to start hurting and I, I need to start getting, you know, shortness of breath and feeling like I need to go to the ER, um, that you are actively triggering some of these things in your thought processes and in your um, behaviors and in your lifestyle choices, you know, in the amount of exercise you get or don't get and in what you're eating, you are actively contributing to these symptoms. Um, it, it's really important that she begins to understand that. And, and it's a it's a long, slow process. Plenty of people know that in order to maintain a healthy weight, diet and exercise, but very few of us actually do it because it's not nearly as much fun. And so it, it's really similar for, for these girls too. It, it's kind of a, um, it's cathartic for them to be thinking along the, the lines of their trauma and to, to kind of be re-triggering themselves. They, they feel that, um, you know, that that's what they're accustomed to is feeling those pains, feeling that hurt. And so teaching her that, um, that, you know, you don't have to think that any longer, that you can take those thoughts captive under Christ, just like Paul talks about. That's a difficult thing for her to accept. But over time, as we continue to, to say similar things over and over and over again, while we're going to the doctor, while uh, tests are being run, while we're sitting there in the ER for no good reason, letting her observe it in the responses of the, the doctors and nurses as they're telling her that, you know, we're not seeing anything. And as we're talking about anxiety and, and the lasting impact of trauma, she begins to put those pieces together for herself. And that's when she can really begin making lasting changes. Exactly. The brain has a lymphatic system of its own, and you, know, you can have inflammation in your brain from just chronic stress over and over and over, and that goes into other parts of the body. Um, I'm looking at this Psychology Today article about correlation between chronic pain and toxic stress, and it, you know, it basically says, very beginning, get a daily walking program, move those muscles, drain, you know, let that lymphatic system drain, move your body feed your body, fuel your body, and while you're doing it, you're, you're going to have less toxic chemicals flowing through there mm-hmm. and uh, more of the good stuff that you need in order to get past that next stage where you can understand how you're healing yourself from within because they're not aware of the lingering effects of trauma, and sometimes they think they've put it behind them, and there's no way that this mm-hmm. pain or this stomach ache could be related to that or the swelling mm-hmm. and, and tingling and burning in my hands. There's no way that's a direct correlation to everything that I've been through in the last 10 years of my life. Mm -hmm. So they have to be able to think clearly in order to start rationalizing that. Um, And that starts in, you know, in the brain where where everything else is. Yeah. Just listening to you, I was kind of struck with the question of, you know, that there's a sense of, you know, that it's cyclical, right? That that you experience pain and maybe the pain is, gives you triggers your stress and you know that there's a there's mm-hmm. a dimension that's cyclical to it and trying to figure out how to kind of break that or invite her out of that cyclical thing that she goes through I hear you saying that you do that really organically that you kind of you go to the hospital with her that you know you're gonna let her sit through a few appointments and what are what are some things that homes or even centers could do to kind of help a mom to see that pattern in her life once you get their initial evaluations done and kind of get an idea of of what their history is, you'll start picking up on the cues. And so at that point, when we introduce them to, hey, this is trauma-related stress that you're experiencing, and, and, you know, and that's why you're using substance or, you know, that's why you're pregnant and homeless is because of, you know, the lifestyle that you've been leading due to trauma. And if we can 
start teaching her that slowly, take her to the ER, and then help her start seeing her own patterns. Mm -hmm. Like, we did this when you had the stomach ache before, and, you know, why don't we try, why don't we try this this time? And do you think it could be related to the conversation that you had with your baby's father? Um, Or, you know, did you and your mother have a really difficult conversation today and try to talk about those things without saying you're sick because of this person or this conversation, but kind of showing it to them like could it be like you really don't know you're just asking the question and getting them to realize it is a process that you know very few can take the short route you know you're going to have to go through the long the same thing happens once they have their baby they want to take that baby to the er every hiccup every burp every dirty diaper that's not absolutely perfect let's take the baby to the doctor and so while you want to care for the infant and you don't want to risk a baby being sick. You can't take them to the doctor, you know, 20 times in a week. It draws a lot of attention for one thing, but just slow education on it. And, well, this is what we tried before that worked, you know, or, or this didn't work. Let's try this first. You know, we went to the ER last week and two weeks before that. So this time, let's try some things and see, you know, what's going to work for you. And then one thing I did with a client the other day, I said, okay, you got really, really stressed and you started sweating. You you know, you had felt your hands clammy, your neck muscles were tight. She was describing this to me. And I said, what did you do? And she told me the steps that she did. And she had been in the program about about a year and was able to let go of all of those within just a couple of hours instead of carrying those through for days and days and waiting on the next round of stress to come and make her ill again. So it took a year with her. I think that's pretty typical that it's going to take a while. Everyone will be different, but it's not an overnight fix because they don't trust that you know what you're talking about, number one. Yeah. And number two, going to the doctor when you have you know free insurance that you're not having to pay anything for, that. You know, that's just what you do. I think there might be a temptation to think of them as, um, you know, some of these as attention-seeking behaviors, right? That's the way that we've Mm -hmm. talked about them in the past, right? Oh, she's just trying to get attention or whatever. Can you talk about it through that context? Well, certainly sometimes that is the end goal is to, to have the eyes back on me. But as a general rule, that's really not the case. We may feel like that's the case, but from her perspective, that's not her intention. Her intention is to make the pain stop. How do I make the pain stop? And, uh, you know, we as a society have kind of bred into ourselves that doctors and medicine will make the pain stop. And so if I have pain, I go to the doctor, I go to the ER, they give me something magical and it stops. It makes the pain stop. It's the same reason they take drugs. Um, For many of them, it's so that the pain will stop, not because I particularly enjoy meth or or pot or cocaine or whatever, but I want the pain to stop. And um, so sometimes there there is a, an instance of, you know, a new baby is born in the house and, and so all the attention is on someone else. And so now suddenly my stomach hurts because I am um, feeling abandoned. That's not that's not necessarily me saying, hey, I'm feeling abandoned. What can I do to get the attention back on me? It's a fear response. It's a survival response. So again, even if these are attention-seeking behaviors, that's not her goal. Her goal is not to disrupt the house and get the attention back on her. The goal is for her to feel secure that she is is still wanted and she is still loved and she is not going to be evicted from the program. Um, For for many of these girls, again, you know, 
evicted from yet another program um, just because there's changes and upheaval. Um, it's a fear response. It is in self-preservation um, as exactly. well. If we do not take their pain seriously, you know, then to them, they're lying to us, so therefore you're going to kick me out. Um, you have to take what they say seriously because it is their truth that they're living at that moment. And they do get threatened when there's new babies, when there's new clients, when they know it's about time for them to leave. Their body will work against that because they fought so long just to get to a new normal and now here's another change. Um, So they go back to what worked before. Again, that can can be psychosomatic. You you know, self-induced I think is a more accurate term than psychosomatic. I can, uh, I suffer from migraines and I can induce a migraine very, very easily just by thinking about it because it's very traumatizing to have migraines and have to stop your life for two or three days at a time over and over and over. So I, I really understand where they're coming from and it, it makes you feel like there's something wrong with you, and it, it actually makes you mad at yourself uh, yeah. as well. So in some ways, I mean, this is kind of a whole other approach toward how we think about, you know, we, we kind of appreciate as in, within our Christian worldview or we know that there's a mind-body connection, mind-body-spirit connection, and, you know, that I think that's a kind of a natural, something that we can embrace. But I feel like this research really points to something that maybe is a different approach toward medicine. I don't know if I'm off there, but maybe it's just this way of thinking about how can we, before dealing with things medically, how can we deal with kind of the the other parts of our person that are maybe hurting. Am I, right. am I often in right. describing it that way? Oh, no, that's exactly right. I think when, when we look at things from a biblical worldview, we do comprehend the holistic nature of, um, of, of God's created being, our, ourselves, and how we are interconnected uh, spiritually, mentally, and physically. But that is not the world's perspective. And so the girls that we deal with, they have absolutely no understanding that there's a, a spirit, mind, body connection. And they they can't even grasp that our brains control our stomach. Or, uh, you know, the reason that I have been constipated my entire pregnancy um, is is because of my fear that I don't know who the the baby's father is and I don't know its uh, its race. And I'm afraid of how my family is going to respond after it's born. It's all interconnected. And and we who understand the biblical worldview can can understand that. But that's a very difficult thing for the girls themselves to grasp. And we have to be very, very gentle. Yes. I'm uh, currently doing a study to see the ratio of cesarean births in trauma victims versus vaginal deliveries because we have a really high rate of cesarean. So I've been looking into that kind of over the last few months to kind of get some data and see what that, I know there's a correlation and I believe there is a much higher instance of C-sections, but I'm trying to get the exact numbers. So that's something I would be really interested in uh, finding out for for future reference for all the maternity homes. I know this has been a few years, but when we did some looking at we were finding that a lot of the women were leaving like right before birth or right after birth, you know, kind of during that window where you think it makes the most sense to stay, right, to settle in and be a part of the house. And we were seeing all these women leaving. And we wondered if there was some type of physiological nesting, like need for my own place, need to have control over my environment, need to kind of create, you know, and, and if we gave women more of that opportunity, maybe that there there's something happening on a physiological level that was at, 
prompting them to leave in a time when they were most vulnerable. That was kind of a speculation on our part, but. We've had a couple that have left right before delivery. One ended up actually coming back a few weeks after delivery. So we talked about diabetes. We talked about stomach pain. I know you've mentioned irritable bowel in in other conversations. Mm -hmm. Are there other kind of things that, you know, oh, you mentioned chronic pain. So are there other things that, that are inflammation, migraine, okay. constant. Oh, headache. Pain. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Other things that come to mind that might be kind of trauma related. Fatigue, chronic yeah. fatigue, work, and then, you know, come home and have to go straight to bed, which then messes up your diet, which then you don't want to exercise. So it's just a vicious cycle that yeah. it's like a, a rat on a wheel. You know, it's hard. It's hard to find a place to get off. And that, that yeah, and it, it, and it, go ahead. It really becomes kind of a, a chicken and egg thing. Which, which comes first, the pain or the, the, the lifestyle changes to compensate for the pain, um, which then trigger more pain. You know, if, if you're not exercising properly every day, if you don't have a good diet, you're going to have increased inflammation. You're going to have, you know, muscle aches and pains. You're going to get, uh, you know, you're more likely to get headaches and migraines and things like that, which triggers your pain, which uh, which triggers you to to want to be in the bed and want to you know really not respond appropriately to the world, and so it just it's just this vicious cycle that these girls are caught up in, but they have a really hard time seeing it as an interconnected cycle. I know the ACEs framework kind of talks about you know if there's traumatic experiences and maladaptive behaviors are adopted, which then lead to health consequences. So exactly. you know it's kind of a, a framework that that ACEs use. But this is in many ways you know it's not even perhaps the maladaptive behaviors are not a part of it. That you know it's it, that there's some traumatic experience that my body remembers. I've heard you use that phrase. You know the body remembers. You know that yeah. and that it's not anything that I've chosen. So there there could be two pathways, right? There's a chosen behavior as well as like, I'm not choosing this. It's just happening to me because of some traumatic experience. Exactly. So and that those might be two different approaches, right? Is this is this a lifestyle choice that I've made or is this um, something that's part of my trigger you know, trauma response? Yeah, and, part yeah, and it could be a mixture. Yeah, yeah, and part of the problem is they've lived the poverty mindset for so long. Trying to change their diet is just absolutely ridiculous they don't know the difference in I mean I've had girls who did not know that bread come from wheat pickles come from cucumbers so you know basic facts of nutrition there there's no they have no idea of these things Mm -hmm. so you have to go break it down on a very very elementary level you know and and just keep introducing things to them hoping that they will make some changes and sometimes uh, they will make the change and you know start to see tremendous progress but the majority of the time food is comfort you know watching tv laying around reading sleeping that's comfort and if i'm sleeping or if i'm eating something good then i'm not going to feel as much pain i'm not going to have to deal with the pain right now or the stress i'm going to just self-soothe yeah it becomes a drug in and of itself Yes. a coping mechanism. If people would like to learn more about this, where, where would they start? Is there anything that you could recommend? In in Tennessee, I know on the um, Tennessee Commission for Children and Youth's website, there is quite a bit of information there on toxic stress and brain development, and it goes from infancy through adulthood. There's lots of articles on there, so I'm, I'm sure the other states have some things as well, but I know that that's accessible to people. A lot of good articles, uh, like I just Googled toxic stress and um, 
physical symptoms. And so there's a lot of good research articles on there. Um, Mm -hmm. This one's correlation between kind of delivery and post-traumatic stress disorder is the one that I'm looking at right now, which goes back to the C-section after, you know, in the birth and the yeah. trauma from that. Yeah, and there's there's tons of books. There's tons of websites available out there. Um, just a matter of Googling it. Um, Aces2high.com, T-O-O-High.com is a great one um, that helps you understand what adverse childhood experiences are, how to use the, the tool, the survey tool, and all those kinds of things. It has tons of research associated with it. Um, the Body keep, Keeps the Score by Vessel T- Vander is a wonderful, wonderful book that really goes into a tremendous amount of detail about trauma and um, the the psychosomatic causes of some of our of our problems. Yeah, no, thanks for those. And we're running out of time. If homes have kind of maybe encountered this idea for the first time and something's gone off, you know, they see that how this happens in their residents or in centers and their clients, you know, you know, they see this kind of pattern or you know, cycle. Can you maybe just ask a closing thought? How did you frame your program differently? Knowing this, what is it a, is there a sense of a new approach or a different approach that you've taken in terms of working with, with uh, the women that are experiencing these uh, kind of symptoms? I, yes, I think the pre-admission screening um, and getting their ACEs and their medical history and looking at that and when, when you see their ACEs score, you pretty much know these issues are going to come along with that client. So you're not being blindsided. And, you know, so you can ask specific questions based on what their response was to the ACEs. You know, if you get somebody that's a 10, you can't expect them to come in, uh, you know, stay there for six weeks, have their own place to live. So just having realistic expectations of what this client is going to need will keep you from really just panicking once these issues do start mm-hmm. cropping up. And I think on the front side is where most of the, the work can be done as far as knowing what kind of program this girl is going to need, what kind of uh, situations should we expect from her. Uh, you know, Personally, ours is on the front side. We know what we're getting into, basically. And all of that comes with time and experience of, of, of seeing it and doing the research and putting in the legwork to learn what you can about it. But I think, you know, just if this is just day one, you've never really heard the term trauma before and, um, and, and you're just trying to figure out how to deal with it, I, I think the very first thing that you can do is just stop and breathe and ask the Lord how to respond in a way that get, that gives her a sense of peace and safety and security and doesn't undermine, you know, the, the, the bigger picture of what you want to accomplish for her, but gives her that, that, um, that sense of trust that she can trust you to work through this with her. I think the biggest thing we can do to damage trust is, um, is by threatening to kick them out too quickly. While that is, you know, our ultimate, uh, ultimate form of punishment, it is, it's also um, a rejection again in her most vulnerable time. And so if we can um, kind of um, 
really just not use that terminology unless it is truly, truly a necessity. Instead of uh, threatening, you know, you you better straighten up or you're going to be back on the streets again. Um, that does not give her a sense of security and peace and rest. Um, it does not make her want to straighten up so she can stay. It makes her want to plan to run because she cannot trust you. She cannot put her trust in, in the safety of this place at this time. So it's, it's really a delicate balance in, in giving her a sense of safety and trust in you and in your program long enough for her to begin to learn the things that you have for her. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, well said. Thank you ladies for, for joining us. And this topic is really interesting. You know, I think it to, to understand the impact on the body is a whole other way of kind of talking about the impact of trauma. Yeah. So I'm glad. I know we just in many ways touched the surface there, but I'm, I'm glad to at least have exposed. Um, uh, one thing that I would add is don't take somebody in that has so much against them that you can't truly be effective with them. If it is not a good fit for your program and your skill set, you know, or say you have two or three already there that are really experiencing a lot of high maintenance, I guess, so to speak. Um, You have to be careful about who you bring into the mix and what their needs are going to be as well. So, you know, we try to be uh, to discern, you know, who the Lord really wants us to take in and who we can do the most for. And sometimes there's just so much against them that it would not, serve any purpose to to take them so learning when you have to say no uh, will prevent a lot of stress on your organization uh, your staff and on the clients themselves yeah no thank you for that reminder this is a great point of discernment that everyone has to get get comfortable with for their organizations so oh very good um as always we're very grateful for your expertise and for your willingness to share it with the the community and kind of talk through some of these things so thank you so much for your time and and knowledge we're grateful for both thanks for listening to this episode of pregnancy help podcast to subscribe to future episodes access resources related to today's session or listen to previous episodes visit www.heartbeatinternational.org podcast thanks for tuning in 